0: So we're in chapter 35, and we're going to cover six chapters tonight, and Clement says in chapter 35, how blessed and marvelous are the gifts of God, dear friends. And so what are these blessed and marvelous gifts of God? He's going to give us a list. For example, life in immortality, there's, there's going to be two nouns in each of these, which is kind of interesting, rather than just a list like. One, two, three, four. It's one and two, three and four, five and six. So life in immortality, splendor in righteousness, truth with boldness, faith with confidence, self-control with holiness. And all these things fall within our comprehension, he says. All right, so uh, what then... Are the things being prepared for those who patiently wait for him? Now, this question goes back to the end of last week's chapter. If you remember, we closed uh, the last chapter from last, the last class with the quotation uh, regarding the world to come, where it says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and it is not entered into the heart of man, what great things he has prepared for those who patiently wait for him. And so he says, here he asks the question, going back to that text, he says, what then are the things being prepared for those who patiently wait for him? And it's a silly question. He already said that uh, eye hasn't seen or ear hasn't heard what these things are. It hasn't even entered the heart of it, so it's just going to tell us now what eye hasn't seen or ear hasn't heard and has never occurred to anyone. What is he going to tell us? Uh, he says, the Creator and Father of the ages, the All-Holy One himself, knows their number and beauty. So in other words, we don't know. God knows. Only God knows what it is that we are patiently waiting for. (laughs) Only God knows uh, what this is is like. What these things the eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard. Let us therefore make every effort to be found in the number of those who patiently wait for Him so that we may share in His promised gifts. Now this is a great theme for Rosh Hashanah. I mean, for the era of of Rosh Hashanah. What a, what a great sentiment, because Rosh Hashanah, to me, is the festival about the return of Messiah, the coming of Messiah. Do we really believe this, that he, that, that Yeshua is going to come back, and that he's, He could come back at any time? I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, He'll come back someday, but do we really believe that uh, He could come back today, that it's, the arrival is imminent? And this is Uh, In the Talmud, for example, it says they're going to ask us three questions. You know, when you pass to the other side, they ask you three questions. It's like, uh, what is your favorite color? What is it? No, 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 that wasn't one of them. No, um, (laughs) there's three questions. I can't remember the first two. Well, one of them is, did you set aside time for study? You're good on that because you're here set aside some time for study did you long for my salvation did you and and by did you long for my salvation means were were you awaiting the redemption so we want to be in this number Clement says we want to be in this number because the things that God has prepared that no eye has seen, no ear has heard are being prepared for those who wait for them if you're not one of those who wait for them they're not being prepared for you So he says, uh, let us therefore make every effort to be found in the number of those who patiently wait for him, so that we may share in his promised gifts. Yes. But how shall this be, dear friends? Well, if our mind is fixed on God through faith, and if we seek out those things which are well-pleasing and acceptable to God, and if we accomplish those things which are in harmony with his faultless will, and follow the way of truth, casting ourselves off from casting off from ourselves all unrighteousness and lawlessness, covetousness, strife, malice, deceit, gossip, slander, hatred of God, pride, arrogance, vanity, inhospitality, inhospitality. I get a list there. We get these lists in the Apostles from time to time The list of things to cast on, things to take to, to put on. Put on this Put off that um, so here's a we, this is a very apostolic kind of list inhospitality though doesn't doesn't register in in the other lists that I'm aware of so so, so if we ca- if we cast these things off for those those things are hateful to God and not only those who do them but also those who approve of them uh, in the modern era, in our country, in our society, it's okay what you believe what your convictions are for yourself. That's okay. The thing is that you can't disapprove of anyone else. That's like the the moral code of society today is that you can't disapprove of anyone else. But Clement says it's not only those who do them, it's those also who approve of those things that are in enmity with God. For scripture says, but to the sinner, God said, why do you recite my statutes? Uh, and take my covenant upon your lips you hated instruction and now he proceeds with a long quotation from psalm 50 you threw away my words behind you if you saw a thief you joined him and with adulterers you threw in your lot and so forth this is psalm 50 verses 16 through 23 and finishes out the chapter how do we know that we're among those who patiently wait for His coming? Uh, how do we do that? Well, we fix our mind on God through faith and we seek the things that are pleasing and acceptable to Him in harmony with His will, following the truth. And we cast off the things that are not in harmony with His will. We cast off the things that are not pleasing and acceptable to Hashem. And that's, that's, uh, that's what Clement says. That's how we, are, we know that we are waiting awaiting the coming of Messiah. And that's chapter 35, those who wait patiently for God. Chapter 36. This is the way, dear friends, in which we found our salvation. Namely, Jesus Christ, the high priest of our offerings, and the guardian and helper of our weaknesses. So, first of all, let's deal with high priest of our offerings. This title should bring to mind, uh, from the New Testament, should bring to mind the central arguments from the book of Hebrews. That's Hebrews chapter 7 through 10, roughly, Hebrews chapter 7 through 10. And what you're going to see in chapter 36 here is an amazing correspondence with, actually with citations from the book of Hebrews. We're not sure exactly how this is working out, but we're about to hit a whole bunch of text that sounds like it was lifted right out of the book of Hebrews. And this is what most scholars would say. Yes, this is Clement copying from the book of Hebrews. There's an alternative explanation. though. Possibly, Clement, this is just Clement's material, and he wrote the book of Hebrews. So that an alternative explanation might be that he's the author of both. Well, we don't know that. But I like that idea. Uh, There's yet another possibility. Uh, And the other possibility is that the writer of the book of Hebrews and Clement are different guys, but they have a common source, like an apostolic midrash, that they are both quoting from and building their arguments from. So that's also a good possibility. All right, so the second title here, The Guardian and Helper of Our Weaknesses. This is good news. So especially as we come into Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we're, we're supposed to be in our top form. And uh, we should be in top form right now and like just about ready to take on the court, the heavenly court and stand before the judges and say, I, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm in good shape here because I've been repenting since a little one. And um, we're not. And so um, it's good news that the Master the, the title, uh, title of his show is Guardian and Helper of Our Weaknesses. And this also is a theme that comes up in the book of Hebrews that we have a high priest, but he's not one who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather having been tested in every way, he's, he's endured the full gamut of human weakness himself. Through him, let us look steadily into the heights of heaven. The idea here. Is you know, this is what every mystic wants. Yeah, mystic. you if you're a mystic, you want to look, be able to look into the heights of heaven. You want to be able to have that experience with the divine. Maybe a vision. Maybe a you know some sort of uh, some sort of altered consciousness. Some sort of touch with with the unseen world. Where this is what all the writers of apocalypses were. Paul has his his experience. Out of the body and the body, I don't know. You know, caught up to the third heaven, saw things that was heard things that I'm not permitted to tell and stuff like that. Sort of mystic lives for that kind of experience. But Clement says, "Oh, we have that. We have that through the Messiah, through Yeshua. When we look into Yeshua, we're looking steadily into the heights of heaven, and through Him." We see as in a mirror his faultless and transcendent face. And through him, the eyes of our hearts have been opened. And through him, our foolish and darkened mind springs up into the light. And through him, the master has willed, that's Hashem has willed, that we should taste immortal knowledge. This is all the stuff that mystics live for. If you're going to be a mystic who fasts for 40 days and has this... this this experience of the Merchava, of the chariot of God, like Ezekiel or something like that. This is is what it's all about. Taste of immortal knowledge. For he being the radiance of his majesty is as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent. And you recognize that from the book of Hebrews, I'm sure. Uh, That appears in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I want to go back to this where he says... um, through him, we see as in a mirror his faultless and transcendent face. This is a Hebraism. For example, i just give it to you very quickly and for the benefit of the people who are listening on the, uh, on the audios, right? You have a passage in First Corinthians 13, the end of the love chapter, uh, where Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. And he's contrasting this world with the revelation of the messianic era and the world to come, of course. But the messianic era being the world to come in this world. <laughs> so he's contrasting these two states of revelation. Basically, Paul is saying, things are kind of out of focus now. But then things will be in focus. So what is this mirror dimly? In the Roman world and in the ancient world, we didn't have glass mirrors like we have today that give you that crystal clear reflection. We use bronze. And so what we do, you get a nice flat piece of bronze and you polish that up. Right? Until you can see your reflection in it. But if you've ever looked into a nice shiny Polished piece of bronze. You realize it's not, you know, it's 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 not the same as like a, a glass mirror in terms of sharpness of image. Moreover, bronze it, it tarnishes, and so as you're using your mirror, it can get tarnished. The more tarnished it is, the it becomes a dim mirror. The sages say something very similar. They say and Paul got this, you know, Paul didn't invent this. This is just, was just a teaching that was current in Judaism. You find it in the Midrash, we find it, I believe you find it in the Talmud. I know you find it also in the Zohar. Moses saw God face to face, whereas all the other prophets saw their vision in a dim mirror. All right? And this is based on Numbers 12, where it says, where Hashem says, Why were you not afraid to criticize my servant Moses? With the other prophets, I speak in visions, dreams, and riddles, but with Moses, I speak face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth. He sees his vision clearly. And the Hebrew word for vision, mare, is a homonym for the word mirror. You can even hear the similarity between mare. So it says, Moses sees his vision clearly. It's like, you could read it as, Moses sees his mirror clearly. The sages read it this way they said all the other prophets saw their vision, they, in other words, they received prophecy from Hashem, through a dim mirror. Or, another Midrash says, through seven mirrors. Mm-hmm. As if you're getting an image of 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 an image. Moses, however, saw face to face. That's... What's going on behind this saying? When he says, "Through him, we see as in a mirror his faultless and transcendent face." So we see as in, in a vision is another way to the, that we could translate that. So this is pretty great. If you really want to, you know, you want to have that sort of like mystical experience with Hashem, Clement says, it's yours. You just you just have to lay hold of it. It's yours because Messiah is the most mystical experience with Hashem, the experience of Yeshua, that, that you can have. Uh, he's higher than the angels. For example, I mean, who, wouldn't that be pretty mystical to see an angel? You know, an angel appears. My father saw an angel once, he says. At least I remember that story when I was a kid. Um, you know, a lot of people see angels, you know, but, I mean, I've never seen an angel, not that I know of. I mean, Abraham entertained angels unaware. He didn't know they were angels. But you know, I mean, so you see an angel. Clement's like, not impressed. Not impressed. I mean, Messiah, Yeshua, he's higher than angels. Give me a vision. I almost have a vision of Yeshua. i a vision of Messiah. For it is written, he makes his angels' winds and his ministers' flames of fire. But of his son, Hashem spoke thus. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations, I will give you the Gentiles for your inheritance and in the ends of the earth for your possession. And again, he says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, you know, in Hebrews, those are like the two key Psalms that the, the arguments in the book of Hebrews are based on. Psalm 2, Messianic Psalm, uh, and Psalm Psalm 110. And not just in apostolic writings, in, in Jewish teaching, in the Midrash uh, as well, these two psalms in the Talmud as well, these two psalms are considered uh, messianic psalms that are speaking about the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah. Uh, so, you know, we've, and we've learned this material pretty well already in studying the book of Hebrews. So, otherwise we could spend quite a bit more time with it. But um, we don't need to, so we won't. So he says, um, he says to the Son, Today I have begotten you, which is, by the way, uh, when the Master receives his, anoint- or his anointing in the Spirit at the Jordan River after his baptism, and the voice says, You are my Son. Hashem is quoting the Psalms. He's, mm-hmm. he's alluding to Psalm 2. Uh, and the same thing on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my Son. In other words, this is the Messiah. Go read your Psalms. Uh, That's what he's saying. Uh, And then Psalm 110, of course. And again, he says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, here's a good question. Who then are these enemies? Who are these enemies that are going to become a footstool for his feet? Who are these enemies? Those who are wicked and who resist his will. Uh, so that 's chapter thirty six the exalted son chapter thirty seven Clement is going to give us this is a pretty fascinating example I think he 's going to he 's going to talk about the Roman army, which is you got to think now Clement is in Rome he is a Roman living in Rome Bishop of the Roman Church he probably has in his congregation people who are either married to or you know legionaries who have been in the army or perhaps even some that are currently in the army although that would be a pretty tense situation uh, you have um, certain obligations in the roman army would not go well with the life of a god fearer uh, such as um, religious obligations if you're a roman soldier this first-hand knowledge of the, the roman army and he uses it as a as a positive example he says which it is i mean the Roman. everybody admired the roman army even the jews admire the roman army i mean you read you read about josephus and you know josephus he's he's the general of the galilee fighting against the roman army he's like those romans they got it together he's trying to train his troops to be more like the romans the, the, you know rome was a war machine that's that's just what they did they made armies they made these legions huge legions And and these legions would march across the world and they make roads for themselves that they would go, you know, and uh, they just march across the world and just destroy everything and, and, and kill anyone that got in their way. And that's how you make an empire It's very efficient, very efficient. You know, we think we're, you know, you know, we're the world superpower now, but, you know, we've only been in the United States, we're the world's superpower. We've got to go discipline Syria, you know, you're going to get over there and say, hey, what are you doing? You can't be using those chemical, you know, it's like kids with bottle rockets. And you can't, hey, you, know, you, you know, we're like the world cop, right? <laughs> oh my. Uh, but, you know, it's only been um, 200 years. We've had a 200-year run here so far, Right. At least that's what it was in nineteen seventy six, back when we had red, white, and blue ice cream. Bicentennial. Yeah, two hundred year Rome lasted a thousand years. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> Let us therefore serve as soldiers, brother with brothers, with all earnestness under his faultless orders. Let us consider the soldiers who serve under our commanders. See how he says our commanders. Yeah. How precisely, how readily, how obediently they execute orders. You know, I kind of wish I had gone into the military so that I would have learned some of that. What was it? Precise, ready, and obedient execution of orders. I think that's, you know, you do learn self-discipline in the military. You learn, well, it's not self-discipline. Actually, it's other people disciplining you. Uh, but you learn discipline in the military. And that's something, sadly, that I never did figure out. Not all are prefects, or tribunes, or centurions, or captains of 50, and so forth, but each one in his own rank. Each one in his own rank executes the orders given by the emperor and the commanders. The great cannot exist without the small, nor the small without the great. There is a certain... Blending in everything, and therein lies the advantage. I think the metaphor is self-explanatory. Now he switches metaphors. It says so let's take our body for example. The head without the feet is nothing. Now wait a second. Yeah, you know, I I think I think there are people without feet who would object <laughs> to this to that statement. <laughs> the the head without the feet is nothing okay we'll we'll give them a little slack Uh, likewise the feet without the head are nothing now that's probably true (laughs) (laughs) even the smallest parts of our body are necessary and useful to the whole body this is true you ever hear like uh you know like um it's like we have certain vestigial organs from earlier on in our evolution, and that sort of thing. Uh, I remember they used to say that the gallbladder was a vestigial organ. They used to say tonsils, vestigial. You know, it's like no, no, these things are really, actually important for the for the healthy functioning of our of our bodies. These are um, there's no, no, nothing uh, nothing is unnecessary. Even the smallest parts of our body are necessary and useful to the whole body. Yet all the members work together and unite in mutual subjugation that the whole body may be saved. Now this sounds very much like uh, one of Paul's metaphors. Uh, Paul uses the same metaphor for for the assembly, for the church, right? And he does it in Romans 12. And he does it in 1 Corinthians 12, he does it in Ephesians 5, he probably does it in a few other places where he always says, Christ is the head and we're all the parts of the body and the different parts of the body shouldn't get up with each other and uh, say, hey, you know, I'm nothing because I'm not an eye or, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so sa- same idea here. And this is chapter 37, an example from the Roman army and an example from the human body. What's the, what's the point of the example? That not everyone is in charge. Mm-hmm. The point is that not everyone is in charge, that there are authorities, that there is structure, there is order, and not everyone is the same. Mm-hmm. But everyone is important. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean anyone's unimportant. It just means that there's different roles in the body of, of Messiah. That's the lesson. Mm-hmm. He's going to continue on with this theme in chapter thirty eight. So in our case, let the whole body be saved in Christ Jesus, and let each man be subject to his neighbor to the degree determined by his spiritual gift. and, and by that I think you know that, that kind of throws us off because you know spiritual gifts we' kind of have them tightly defined by Paul you know and Paul tells us spiritual gifts, but but Clement's not using the language in that way here. Uh, when, he, when he says uh, a spiritual gift, he's going to explain. What he means by this? Uh, Well, look, what does Clement mean by spiritual gifts? All right, here's what he says. The strong must not neglect the weak. So if if you're strong, if you have strength, if you have physical strength, bodily strength, or if you're in a position of power and influence, that's another kind of strong. He says this is a spiritual gift. You don't think of it as a spiritual gift. You know, but 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 Clement says, no, this is it's a gift from God that makes it a spiritual gift. Mm-hmm. So if you're strong, you must not neglect the weak. And the weak must respect the strong. Let the rich support the poor. Now who ever thought you know riches to, to be rich is a spiritual gift? You know, Paul says of all the spiritual gifts we should eagerly des- desire prophecy, but I think we probably desire this one a little more. <laughs> Let the rich support the poor. Let the poor give thanks to God because he has given him someone through whom his needs may be met. So you see, there's a he's hes painting this picture of this symbiotic relationship between believers in, in the body of Messiah. In the Talmud it says, the poor man who needs charity uh, does a bigger service to the rich man who gives him charity than the rich man does for the poor man because the poor man gives the rich man the opportunity to do a mitzvah, which is going to endure forever. Whereas the couple coins or the small amount of money he gives to the poor man uh, you know, won't last very long. Let the wise display his wisdom not in words, but in good works. So, so wisdom is, is a spiritual gift. Paul, Paul agrees with that. The humble person humility who knew humility was a spiritual gift the humble person should not testify to his own humility i didn't say a thing (laughs) i didn't say anything did you notice that (laughs) the humble person should not testify to his own humility i like the song oh lord it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way right but leave it to someone else to testify about him. And here we see another, that's the second time he's alluded to that Psalm, it's, uh, or that proverb, Proverbs 27. Uh, Let another person's lips praise you. Uh, Let the one who is physically pure remain so, and not boast. What is this? Recognizing as someone else who grants him this self-control. This is asceticism. You know, in in the first century, there was a track of asceticism that was uh, pioneered by the Essenes, and John the Immerser, uh, and our Master. They say, "I'm not going to get married. I don't need to get married. I don't need to. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm going to, I'm I'm going to just serve Hashem." And Paul Paul strongly endorses this as as a path, if 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 you're called to it. And the Master says, for those to whom it is given, he says. But the, the implication is that most people are not. and It is not given to most people. In fact, Hashem says it's not good for a man to be alone. And he never said that about women. <laughs> you ever notice how women just seem to do, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty fine? <laughs> I mean, you ever notice this? Well, it's true. I mean... They don't need us. <laughs> they don't. It's uh it becomes the in marriage it becomes really obvious who needs who. <laughs> and you see it when um it, it, when couples, you know, who have been to, married a long time, you know, uh you know, God forbid uh um a man loses his wife, you know, they're often really quick to remarry. I mean you've probably seen that. You've probably and you and you say and people go, wow, wait, slow down, you know. It's like you know six months you know or you know less less, yeah but but it's men are so needy we're just so very very emotionally needy that's the thing about it uh that's why it's not good for men to be alone women do okay (laughs) it's true um anyway so that was a digression in the first century, there's, this was a path. And people say, no, that th- this is totally not Jewish. So you hear people like talk about this and say, like Dan Brown would say something, you know, Da Vinci Code guy, says, um, you know, Jesus would have been married, you know, because no Jewish man would have been unmarried, you know. But that, re- that reflects, really that reflects a, a, a later standard. Uh, because we know that one of the largest sectarian movements in Judaism in the first century was celibate there There was room in first century Judaism for the celibate path. The church didn 't just make it up out of nowhere, and uh, we could um, we could look at different stories of of that uh, you know people too who took that path, but again, John the immerser, uh, our master himself, John the Son of Zabidi took that path. Uh, The Apostle Paul took that path, although we have reason to believe he might have been married previously. The point in Clement is a person who takes this path might start to think, well, I'm pretty holy. (laughs) More holy than all these married people. (laughs) (laughs) Or something like this. He says, no. You shouldn't, you know, you, you should recognize that this too is, this is, God called you to this. God gave you this gift. He gave you this. It says, let us acknowledge, brothers, from what matter we were made. Who and what we were, when we came into the world, from what grave and what darkness he who made and created us brought us into his world, having prepared his benefits for us before we were born. This reminded me when I was reading it of a saying from Pirkei Avot that I put on your sheets. Consider three things and you will not fall into transgression. Know whence thou comest, Whither thou art going, and before whom thou art about to give an account and reckoning. Know from whence thou comest from a fetid drop. And whither thou art going to worm and maggot. And before whom thou art about to give account and reckoning before the king of kings, the holy one, blessed be he. So a person starts to think he's big stuff. You know, he starts to think, you know, I'm really something. Clemenses, remember what you came from. Remember where you came from. Seeing therefore that we have all these things from Him, we ought in every respect to give thanks to Him, because everything that a person has, as John the Baptist says, a man can receive. A man can receive nothing at all unless it's given to him by heaven. Uh, everything we have comes from Him. So we ought in every respect, for every breath, you know, every breath is uh, is a gift, right? Uh, We ought to, in every respect, to give thanks to him, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. And that's our third doxology so far. We're counting. 39. Senseless and stupid and foolish and ignorant men jeer and mock at us, wishing to exalt themselves in their own imaginations. Who are these senseless, stupid, foolish, ignorant men? They're jeering and mocking. It sounds like college freshmen, but wishing to exalt themselves in their own imaginations. These are uh, these. Remember the historical context here. In Rome, throughout the Roman Empire at this time, the believers have been getting uh, a bad a bad rap, and uh, a lot of false rumors have been spread about the believers, uh, but there's a, there's a general sentiment of anti-Semitism throughout the empire that's applied specifically with great hostility and through imperial policy against the believers uh, who are labeled as the Christian superstition the, and an illegal sect or an illegal religion, an illegal religion. So Clement says that's senseless, stupid, foolish, and ignorant. But he says, don't worry about this, for what can mortals do to us? What strength does an earthborn creature have? For it is written, there was no form before my eyes. I heard only a breath and a voice. What then? Shall a mortal be clean in the presence of the Lord? And this is an interesting quotation from Job that goes on through to the end of the chapter. I won't read it all to you, but this is, it's a, it's, it's Job chapter 4, 16 through chapter 5, 5 with some other passage of Job sandwiched in the middle. And then we're going to move on to chapter 40. Since therefore these things are now clear to us and we have searched into the depths of the divine knowledge. We ought to do, in order, everything that Hashem has commanded us to perform at the appointed times. This is interesting, it's seasonal, because the word "appointed times" is moedim, moedim which uh, is the same word that we use if, if we translate it as festivals, you know, the biblical festivals, God's appointed times. So when, when Clement uses the word, he's not using it any differently. He's using it in exactly the same sense: Passover, Pentecost, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. But there's also daily appointed times: it's the times of prayer, the times of sacrifice, Shacharit, Mincha, Mariv. These are also called Moedim. So, and this this is exactly the way that Clement's using it. He's using it exact the, the terminology in the, the Jewish sense. So here, this becomes, I mean, if you, I used to, um, you know, spend a lot of time when I was still learning and still trying, still sort of arguing, still used to, you know, was still arguing with Christian, uh, the, the the prevailing Christian sentiment that, well, you know, the law is done away with and it's not for Christians and or, you know, Gentile Christians don't, you know, and, and this sort of thing. And so, this particular chapter, I thought, you know, this is one of, I felt like, well, this one's... People should read this, chapter 40. you know, Because here, Clement's writing to the believers in Rome uh, near the end of the first century, and he's talking about keeping the appointed times. It says, We ought to do, in order, everything that Hashem has commanded us to perform at the appointed times. Psh, there you go. I mean, that's pretty straight to the point. Now... He commanded the offerings and services to to be performed diligently and not to be done carelessly or in disorder, but at designated times and seasons. Clement has in mind right now chapters 28 and 29 of the book of Numbers, which are the Musaf sacrifices that are prescribed for each of the uh, appointed times, each of the Moedim. Uh, comes with these specific sacrifices, and they're spelled out in Numbers 28 and 29. That's what he's talking about. Uh, and so it's not—it's not done. You know, the sacrificial services weren't done carelessly or, or in disorder. It wasn't like, you know, a guy showed up with a, a guitar and just felt and, and said, "I just feel like the spirit's moving me to uh, offer a goat for a burnt offering," you know, or, or something like this. It was like it's prescribed. It's it's uh, it's done. Uh, it's done in order, not, not carelessly or in disorder. It's, it's prescribed. Both where and by whom he wants them to be performed, he himself is determined by his supreme will, so that all things being done devoutly according to his good pleasure might be acceptable to his will. So uh, where he says, both where and by whom he wants them performed. The where is the holy temple. In Jerusalem, what is the whom? The whom is the Jewish people uh, through the priesthood. So both where and whom he wants them to be performed, he himself is determined by his supreme will so that all things being done devoutly according to his good pleasure might be acceptable to his will. All right, so now you've come to the crux of the academic argument for why it's impossible that Clement could have written the Book of Hebrews, because everybody knows that the Book of Hebrews writes about the sacrificial system being canceled and abolished, and it's no, you know, it's uh, it's from it, from the old covenant that's quickly perishing and, and so on and so forth. And here Clement's talking about it like it's all still good, you know, and uh, so obviously he can't be the same guy. And that's the, main, that's the main argument. Well, my argument is, of course, that we've misunderstood the book of Hebrews, gravely misunderstood the book of Hebrews, if that's the conclusion that we're reaching. Uh, and uh, so um, I see no conflict between the book of Hebrews and Clement chapter 40. Those, therefore, who make their offerings at the appointed times are acceptable and Blessed. For those who follow the instructions of Hashem, cannot go wrong. That's what he says. A surprising sentiment, don't you think, from a Christian writer? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, this is not what you. This is not what you would be expecting. I don't think. I mean, it's not what. Uh, not what you're going to hear. You're not going to hear the, the uh, you know, a, a Christian writer or a teacher, a Christian teacher today say something like this. Therefore, uh, those who make their sacrifices, their animal sacrifices, their blood sacrifices at the appointed times are acceptable and blessed. <laughs> it's not, saying, not, not going to be a teaching you're going to run into too often. But Clement's just, you know what? Clement's just reading the Bible. He's just reading the Torah. He says, he says You follow the instructions of Hashem. You can't go wrong. And you know, that's what he means. The instructions, when he says the instructions of the Master, the instructions of Hashem, he means the Torah. That is the Torah. That's what the Torah is. Torah means instruction. Mm -hmm. For to the high priest the proper services have been given to the priest. The proper office has uh, been assigned and upon the Levites, the proper ministries have been imposed and the layman is bound by the layman's rules. So he, he gave us four categories of Israelite here, right? High priest, priest, Levite, layman. They all have their job. They all have their obligation. Everybody has a role to play in the sacrificial services. So, Clement, what, why is why is, why is he, what's his point here I, the point is very simple Clement is using this in the same sense that he used, he was speaking of the Roman army or he's speaking of the human body one body many parts a whole army not everybody's in the commander not everybody everybody's the emperor not everybody's a captain not everybody is a general uh, you know everybody has has a different role to play. this is the same in the Jewish people everybody has a different role to play in this thing Clement is distinguishing he's making these distinctions to show that even that that even according to the Torah, there are various roles and responsibilities for various stations various people now what's interesting about this this is not what Clement was doing uh, but this would this would also be a perfect chapter for the to to argue the one law thing you know the people the the people who are uh, staunchly saying. There's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. We're exactly the same. Jews are the same as Gentiles. Gentiles are the same as Jews in regard to our obligation to the Torah. Clement chapter 40. Say, It's not like that. The Torah is not. It never was like that. It was never a one size fits all. It's always had distinctions. Even within the Jewish people. So he goes on in chapter 41. Let each of you brothers, in his proper order, give thanks to God, maintaining a good conscience, not overstepping the designated rule of his ministry, but acting with reverence. So not overstepping the designated rule of his ministry. This is We're talking boundaries. Right now, Clement's concerned with authority issues. He's concerned with people who have usurped the authority in Corinth, but the lesson applies in different areas as well. He says, not just anywhere brothers are the continually daily sacrifices offered, for example. So we're now we're talking about the Korban Tamid, continual burnt offering. So you can't just bring that, you can just like set that up anywhere. Remember, when Clement's writing, the temple's already been destroyed for uh, 35, you know, 25 years. It's been a quarter of a century since there's been a a korban tamid, since there's been a continual burnt offering. His point is, you, you know, so why isn't there? Why, why, why isn't, why aren't we sacrificing these things? Well, because you can't do that just anywhere. Not just anywhere uh, can you make the sacrifice or the free will offering or the offerings for sin and trespass, but only in Jerusalem. And even there, the offering is not made in every place, but only in front of the sanctuary at the altar. The offering priest having been first inspected for blemishes by the high priest. No, the offering having been first expected for blemishes by the high priest and the previously mentioned ministers. Those, therefore, who do anything contrary to the duty imposed by his will receive the death penalty. What is that? Well, there's a passage. I think I maybe put it on your sheet here, even. Yeah, Numbers chapter 3, verse 10. Moses is laying out the various roles and responsibilities of the priests and the Levites. And he's saying, you Levites, your family is going to carry this stuff, and your family is going to do that. And you guys set this up, and you guys set that up. Uh, and the priest, this is the priest that's going to be in charge of your family, and this is the priest that's going to be in charge of your family. So he's laying out these, these boundaries for the priests and the Levites. And then he says, it says in Numbers 3.10, So shall, you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, that they may keep their priesthood, but the layman who comes near shall be put to death. Wow. What does that mean? Well, it means if you walked into the temple in a place that you're not supposed to be, you're to be put to death. You know that song, Take Me Into the Holy of Holies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the point, though. Is is that Hashem's temple? Is, the temple is in, in your midst. It's a serious thing. The presence of God in your midst is serious. How serious is it? So serious that the person who violates, who crosses the boundary, who who takes upon himself, you know, there's a story of um, King um, Uzziah thought, you know. King Uzziah says to himself one day, King Uzziah is reading the Torah, and it says, it says here there's one law, <laughs> one law for everyone. And so he says, I'm going to burn incense. <laughs> Goes into the temple to burn incense. The priests are like, Uzziah, kid, my lord the king, get out of here. You're not supposed to be in here. You're not supposed to be in here. And he's like, no, I can be in here. And boom, he's hit with leprosy. Immediately, leprosy spreads across his body. And they rush him out because he's, now he's unclean and defiling the temple as well. Lives the rest of his life as a leper. And he was a good king. Uzziah was a very good king. He wasn't a bad king. He was one of the good ones. In fact, Isaiah was a big fan of Uzziah. We don't have Isaiah's book of Uzziah. That would be nice. But Isaiah wrote a chronicle of King Uzziah and all of his deeds and his lifetime. And this is before Isaiah was a prophet because it's in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And that's when he received his commissioning to be a prophet. Yeah, so unfortunately, we didn't get, to, we didn't get the Uzziah chronicle, but he's a good, he was a good king. He overstepped the boundary. Even the king has boundaries. So he says, You see, brothers, in verse 4 here of chapter 41, as we have been considered worthy of greater knowledge, so much the more are we exposed to danger. The meaning here is in regard to the tabernacle, the temple is a fabulous thing to have Hashem as your next door neighbor. You know, it's like amazing. You mean God's going to dwell in the midst of our camp? That's fabulous you know, I mean, imagine this, the creator of the universe is, yeah, that's his place right there. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I get all charged up in that, that I can, when people come to my neighborhood, I can point out to them the house that Bob Dylan recorded his first, uh, his first recordings in. That's like just down the block from me and across the street, you know, it's uh, I'm like, so every time I'm like, hey, check out this house, right? So imagine if it's like, Oh, and, and that's a Shem's house right there. No, no, he really lives there. <laughs> you know? This is gr- great—the great revelation that Israel was enjoying was, you know, what a privilege that God will dwell with His people. But with His privilege came this great responsibility. How great was the responsibility? This danger was so great that if you trespassed, you know, when you trespass, you cross the boundary where you don't belong. You're to be put to death. It's a death sentence. It's like, well, oh, I just need more of you, Hashem. Well, <laughs> Nadab and Abba, who felt the same, <laughs> you know. Um, I was up north this last week with the, with the girls, and we were trying to, I wanted to take them down uh, to the lake. Uh, and um, I said, now, I think this might be private property. So we're, we have, to be, you know, we're going, and pretty soon there was a sign, no trespassing. Like, Dang. You know, and I thought, I have never seen a sign that says trespassing. You know, <laughs> they always say no trespassing. When when, when you're allowed to trespass, why isn't there a sign that says trespassing or trespassing allowed? Anyway, Clement is saying no trespassing. Well, why is he even talking about this though? What does this have to do with Believers living in Corinth who are nowhere near Jerusalem, most of them are Gentiles and couldn't go to the temple anyway, even if there was a temple and there hasn't been one for 25 years. So what's his point? Well, he's using this as an analogy that he's going to bring to bear on the current situation of upset and disruption in the Corinthian congregation. He's going to say, look, you're out of order. You've been trespassing this this recent change in leadership, this schism, this congregational split is trespassing. So he says, uh, you see brothers, as we have been considered worthy of greater knowledge, so much more we are exposed to danger, which is, uh, reminds me of the master's saying, um, which I summarize on your sheet, that's with revelation, comes responsibility. You know, people always ask, yeah, like, uh, well, what about, you know, the, um, the people who never had the opportunity to hear the gospel or something like that? Grew up in a different religion or something like that. But I think this principle that Clement is giving us applies to all those sorts of questions. With revelation comes responsibility. As the Master says, the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. So you receive a, a few. You still get flogged. <laughs> but you only receive a few. From everyone who has given, has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. So the one who did know and committed deeds worthy of a flogging, will receive many blows, he says in the same passage. And and so his principle, to everyone who is is given much as required, is precisely what Clement is alluding to here, this beautiful sentiment. You see, brothers, we've been considered worthy of greater knowledge, so much more are we exposed to danger, because with that knowledge comes greater responsibility.